Well, back in 1996, I became the pastor at First Christian Church in Columbus, Indiana. This was a really unique church. It was a historic church. It was a church with a great past. The building itself was designed by an internationally recognized architect. It was the same family that did the, the St. Louis Arch. The auditorium seated hundreds of people. The organ was one of only a handful in the country. The youth center had a skating rink, a bowling alley, and a gymnasium. I remember when I was in high school, our youth group actually went up and, and spent the night in the gym of that church. And, and we went exploring, and we went into the sanctuary, and I stood up on that platform. At that time, it was the largest church building I had ever been in. As a teenager, I already knew that I was going to be a preacher, and I stepped up behind that pulpit, and I thought to myself, what would it be like to preach in a church like this? And I, and I just could not imagine. And, and then 15 years later, there I was. I asked the leaders if it uh, worried them to hire a preacher who was only 32 years old. They said it scares us to death. But, uh, but they pulled the trigger. Uh, they said they were hiring me to be a catalyst for change. That was their words, catalyst for change, which actually means lightning rod. Um, I came in. I tried to help lead through some transition. The elders were supportive. The staff worked with me for the most part. I spent seven years there, and God really blessed that. We grew. We built a $3 million addition. <laughs> okay, just kidding. Okay, uh, there we go. That's more like it. Um, so we added on to the building, and man, it really was. It was a great ministry and met some wonderful people. But I got to be honest with you. I was often not the most popular guy in town. I was not the most popular person in the church. I had people in the church writing me really mean letters and really angry letters because of the, the, the changes that we were making. There were families who left the church. There, there were a couple of staff members who had long been loved on staff who left. And I remember I was talking to Wayne Smith one day. Wayne preached 40 years in Lexington. He was just a real mentor to me. And I kind of was talking to him one day about the pressure and all this opposition. And I offhandedly said to him, well, it's a big church. I can just avoid those people. And he challenged me not to do that. He challenged me to, to toughen up and, and to reach out to them, be the bigger person, try to build a bridge, meet them on their turf, try to find some common ground. And, and so I did, not because I wanted to, but because I loved Wayne and I would have done just about anything that he asked me to do. But I specifically set up five meetings with my five biggest critics. And I would have to say that two of those meetings, things really did not change much. Two of the meetings, I would say, things just continued to deteriorate, get worse. I came back to the office from one of those meetings. The office assistant there said, well, how did it go? I said, well, it was about like a root canal. And, and that's, that's really kind of how it felt. But in one case, this man became not only a friend to me, but became one of my biggest supporters. He was the one who honestly wrote the most critical letter. But he and I found a way to work together, and we really kind of thrived together he needed to be heard. I think he needed to sort of blow off a little frustration. And he was probably right about a little bit of what he said. But you know, the elders of that church, they did not tell me what I was in for when they hired me. I'm not blaming them. I don't think they realized either. But I, I, I just, I had no idea what was coming. As hard as some of those letters were to read, and as much backlash as I 
faced. I, I wish somebody had written me a letter before I got there that just gave me a heads up of what to expect. I, I think I would rather have known in advance than to go in as unprepared as I was. Have you ever gotten a letter or maybe a text or an email, maybe even just a conversation, and it was hard to take? Maybe somebody was telling you, look, you got to toughen up. If you think it's bad now, it's about to get a lot worse. And you really did not enjoy hearing that. You didn't like reading that message. But I wonder, did you ever look back later on a conversation or a note like that and you say, you know, I'm really glad they said that. I'm glad they wrote that. Better to know and be ready than to be blindsided. Well, we are going to look this morning at a letter like that. We began a new series last week. It's based on the seven letters that are in the early chapters of Revelation. They are written to seven specific churches in seven ancient cities of the first century. And the Apostle John received this vision of heaven. Jesus himself instructed John to write down these messages and they needed to be delivered to the churches. The churches were in Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. Cities that many of us have never even heard of. Most of us certainly will never visit. And while these cities in Asia Minor might seem foreign to us, the seven churches themselves in many ways resemble the church of today throughout the world. There are some legalistic churches in the world. There are some liberal churches, some dead churches, some alive churches, some apathetic churches. And in some of these letters that Jesus dictated to John, the message contained both affirmation of things the church was doing right and then also some warning about things that needed to change, things they were doing wrong. Two of the churches received no warnings because the assessment about them was really all pretty positive. One of the churches received no affirmation at all. It was all critique because things were really negative there. But I think both kinds of messages, positive and negative, offer insight for us as a church family, but also as individual believers. And look, even if you're not a Christian, I believe that within these messages, there's wisdom and insight about life that can be helpful. Last week, we looked at the church in Ephesus. It was really a legalistic church. The message that we talked about last week was to wise up, that Jesus was telling them, look, you work hard, you're faithful, but you've lost love. These believers were kind of going through the motions, but there was no compassion for others. There was no real devotion to God. And last week, we used marriage as an illustration of how you can lose love in a relationship. And so we talked a little bit about marriage, but specifically, the main point is that followers of Jesus, the church as a whole, individuals, that we have to keep the main thing the main thing, and certainly the main thing is love. Now today we turn to this church in Smyrna, a persecuted church. And the message here from Jesus was positive in the sense that they were all faithful despite what they were going through, but the message was also fairly sobering, really even troubling, because Jesus was saying things are hard right now, but they're about to get much harder. Jesus wrote the letter to the church that I wish somebody had written to me in 1996. This letter was warning them of what was to come. 
And, and my summary of what this letter from Jesus to the church in Smyrna is, is to toughen up. And, and maybe that sounds insensitive to you. Maybe that sounds harsh. But because Jesus cared so much about these people, he wanted them to brace themselves for what was around the corner. Jesus wrote this letter, had John write the letter, so that they would be ready for what they were about to face. And I believe that this letter to the church in Smyrna applies to the world today. It applies to us today. There are certainly places on this planet where it is illegal to be a Christian. And persecution is really, really intense. We saw some of that in the video that we watched earlier. People who have experienced persecution firsthand. But even here in America, where we have historically been blessed with tremendous freedom, the tide seems to be turning. If you listen to the news or you spend much time on social media, it feels like everybody is mad today and getting madder. You remember how people, I mean, it seemed like people used to be able to disagree with each other and still be friends. It's like Republicans and Democrats could respect each other. They could have civil conversations. They could vote without violence. And while we haven't always gotten it right as a nation, I understand. Remember how our founders kind of dreamed of a land where people would have this great opportunity to thrive in diversity. That religion was not the enemy. It was just that no religion was going to be forced on anyone because freedom would prevail. Remember how Christians and non-Christians seems like used to be able to work side by side. Maybe they would have a, a little debate, you know. They, they might share why they believe or why they don't believe, and it wouldn't have to blow up in everybody's face. And friends, I don't think of myself as a worrier. I, I'm, I'm not an alarmist. I'm certainly not a prophet of doom, I don't think. But times seem to be changing. The kind of persecution that we see in other countries regarding faith and values feels less and less foreign today. It seems like the world in general is becoming more and more hostile to things like faith and morality and biblical values. This series that we're in is called Up to Us. Hashtag Up to Us. See, if we're going to be part of the solution and not the problem... If we're going to be a positive influence in this community, if we're going to love God, love people, and build a bridge to Jesus, if we're going to worship, connect, and serve, and by worship we mean here corporately but also privately, by, by connecting we mean that we connect with each other here in the church, but also we connect with those on the outside, family, friends, coworkers, neighbors, that we serve, yeah, inside the walls of the church, but we also serve out in the community if those things are going to happen, it's up to us. We can't just expect somebody else to sort out everything. It is on us. It's up to us. We do it together. The hashtag in social media categorizes things, and it's just a reminder that we're all in this together. We're in the same category. We're on the same team. We're trying to accomplish these things. It is up to us. We're the hands of Jesus, the feet of Jesus, the mouth of Jesus in the community and even around the world. And the truth is, that's not always popular today. Bob Russell used to say that the church should serve as the conscience of the community, not the judge of the community, not the morality police, not a dictator, not the enforcer, but we ought to be the conscience. 
That we ought to, ought to speak up when things go wrong. We ought to challenge when there's a loss of integrity, a loss of morality. We, we can't make people agree with us, and, and we can't make people fall in line with biblical truth. But we ought to be modeling what's right, and then we ought to be able to help point out what's wrong. And that's not tolerated in many circles today. Let me show you what Jesus said to the church in Smyrna. And then we'll talk about what it means for us today. Look in Revelation 2 beginning in verse 8. To the angel of the church in Smyrna write, These are the words of him who is the first and the last, who died and came to life again. I know your afflictions and your poverty, yet you are rich. I know the slander of those who say they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Do not be afraid of what you are about to suffer. I tell you, the devil will put some of you in prison to test you. You will suffer persecution for 10 days. Be faithful, even to the point of death, and I will give you the crown of life. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. He who overcomes will not be hurt at all by the second death. In verse 8, Jesus once again identifies himself as the one sending the letter. He is the first and the last, the A to Z, the east, west, north, and south. He is the beginning and the end. He's the one who has been for all time and the one who will be for all time. He is the one who died and the one who came back to life. He is the one who lives forever and ever. This letter sent to the church in Smyrna comes from Jesus himself. Now, did a heavenly messenger or an earthly messenger deliver it? We really don't know for sure from the way this is written. But John copied it verbatim from the mouth of Jesus. And notice he points out the current condition of the church. In verse 9, Jesus says, I know your afflictions and your poverty. In spite of the fact that Smyrna was a wealthy city, the believers there were both poor and oppressed. I mean, let's face it, when society is against you, when culture does not trust you or respect you, not only is it likely that you're going to be mistreated, but who's going to hire you? Who's going to give you work if you are hated and not trusted? And still further, slander came upon them from those who called themselves Jews. Judaism was at least somewhat accepted more than Christianity at the time. But these were not authentic Jews, Jesus says. They claimed to be followers of Jehovah God, but they really belonged to Satan, the father of lies. They were evil to the core, and they were the ones bringing false accusations against the followers of Christ. See, persecution often begins with attitudes and with words, but it can progress to violence. First, the believers were slandered, then they were oppressed, and Jesus says, more is coming, much more. He said persecution would escalate in the months and years to come. Take another look at verse 10. Do not be afraid of what you are about to suffer. I tell you, the devil will put some of you in prison to test you, and you will suffer persecution for 10 days. Be faithful even to the point of death, and I will give you the crown of life. Some would be put in prison, some would be put to death, some would suffer persecution, he says, for 10 days. Now, most scholars agree that the 10 days has to be symbolic here. It's too specific otherwise. Well, what if you suffer 11 days? What if you make it only nine? It seems that there has to be some kind of symbolism. 
Some teachers have suggested that the 10 days represent 10 years of time. There was a decade of time in the early 300s AD when persecution was especially pervasive and cruel under the emperor Diocletian. Now, others have suggested that the 10 days suggest a length of time that if you're talking about being tortured, 10 days would be horrible. That's, that's a long time to face intense, horrific persecution. But in the same verse, it also says the crown of life, that's a reward that lasts forever. In other words, the idea is that Jesus is contrasting temporary suffering. 10 days would be terrible. But compared to the eternal reward of the crown of life, it's a small price to pay. There's a long, tough persecution coming, however long, but you endure, remain faithful, the crown of life will be waiting. We were talking about persecution on Thursday at my men's Bible study, and I wonder if you've ever asked yourself, why have God's people been so intensely persecuted over the centuries? From the Jews of the Old Testament to the Christians of today, Jews have consistently been hated and oppressed. Christianity has been the object of attacks all over the world. Why? I mean, Christianity, when it is lived out in a biblical and Christ-like way, Christianity is all about love and grace. Now, sure, there is truth that challenges people's morals and their lifestyle in, in, in many ways in our culture. But when it's working right, Christianity promotes love and, and peace and joy and grace. What's to hate about that? Well, the Bible says that those who love the darkness will rebel against the light. Christianity calls people into the light. It calls them to repent. It calls for life change, for a higher morality. And people don't like to be challenged. And people don't like to have their values questioned. So there is opposition, sure. But friends, I've got to be honest with you. I think it's more than that. We have a supernatural enemy who wants us to fail. Jesus knows, excuse me, Satan knows that Jesus comes from the Jewish people. And therefore, he hates the Jews. And Satan knows that Jesus offers the only hope of salvation, and so that's why he opposes everything that we stand for, everything that we set out to do. There is a spiritual battle going on in the unseen world. There really are angels and demons, forces of good, forces of evil, and there are supernatural enemies who want to stop us. I'll be honest with you, it's one of the reasons that I believe that Jesus is real and Christianity is true. If all of this was based on myths and lies and legends, it most likely would have died out a long time ago. People certainly would not have been so opposed to Christianity. They would not have tried so hard to crush it. The fact that Christianity is so intensely opposed suggests to me that there are spiritual forces of evil involved. That God is holding back this attack from the enemy. But also in verse 11 here, Jesus reminds the church of the ultimate reality of where they will end up. Pick up again in the middle of verse 10. Be faithful even to the point of death, and I will give you the crown of life, Jesus says. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. He who overcomes will not be hurt at all by the second death. 
He tells them, you will receive the crown of life. You will not be hurt by the second death. The second death is that death which is beyond the end of our physical lives. When the body dies, the spirit lives on. And for those who have stubbornly refused the grace of Jesus, it's not the end of their existence. It's not that kind of death. Rather, it is a life separated from God. It's a life in a place that reeks of death. It's that life that embodies pain and separation and eternal regret. But he says, you remain faithful until death. You remain faithful to the point of death, faithful even if you are killed for your faith. You're faithful to the end. You receive the crown of life. If you are unfaithful and stubbornly rebel, there's only a second death waiting. So man, Jesus packs a whole lot in just a few little verses here. He says to the church in Smyrna, he says, I see your pain, but I'll be with you. That, that, that they are poor physically, but they are rich spiritually. They are oppressed now, and frankly, it's about to get worse. But if they endure now, one day they will prevail, and they will forever. And, and so you say, okay, well, where does that leave us today? I mean, times may be hard for us, but we are not persecuted like many people in the early church were. Certainly not like believers today who live in countries where, where, where the government is hostile to Christianity and where the message of Christ can get you killed. What does he say to us about hardship and about opposition, even about persecution? And I think it comes down to what we expect out of life and how we prepare for the future. What we expect out of life, how we prepare for the future. What we expect will happen, how we prepare for what might happen. And the truth is, I can think of at least four kinds of responses to expectation and preparation. Let me show you what I mean. There are some people who expect the best and they prepare for the best. And at first glance, well, that sounds pretty good. Have a positive attitude, be optimistic, count on things working out. But I'm talking about people who only expect life to be smooth and easy, and they not only expect that, they prepare for life to only be smooth and easy. No contingencies. And I think that kind of approach to expectation and preparation is naive because life does not always work out as planned. Do you know what Gail and I were supposed to do this afternoon? We were supposed to get on a plane and fly to Florida and be together with all of her siblings first time since before COVID. Instead, she decided Friday to get COVID. And uh, I tested negative last night. I'm all good. And so we canceled our flights and we're not going to Florida. And sometimes life throws you a curveball. Or a foul ball. There's twists and turns. There's rainy days, rainy seasons. Sometimes there's opposition. Sometimes there's devastation. And it comes into every life. And it is naive to pretend that life is always going to be easy. And oh, it's always just always going to be worked out, work out just like we planned. If you only expect the best and you only prepare for the best, you may be in for a world of hurt at some point in your life. So that's one extreme. But there's another extreme, and this is those people who expect the worst and prepare for the worst. These are people who always think the carpet is about to be pulled out from under them. 
I mean, they question everybody's motives. They refuse to find good in anything. They always brace themselves for the other shoe to drop. Something's bound to go wrong. They're always talking about how bad things are and how messed up everybody is, how we're all going to hell in a handbasket, and you better hold on tight because the sky is about to fall. You know people like this. Okay, all right, just bear with me. There was a guy who had a hunting dog, and man, it was the best hunting dog ever. He, he trained this thing. This dog had never not gotten the bird that he had shot. In fact, he trained this dog so well that it could actually walk on water out to get the birds. And he went hunting with, one day with one of those guys, the eternal pessimist. This guy was critical about everything. The dog walked across the water. He said, your dog can't swim, can it? I mean, there's just people like that. You know what I'm talking about? Always negative. Always see the bad and everything. Oh, there's no good left in the world. And they refuse to believe there's anything good. So you've got the Pollyanna kind of people, and you've got the people over here that everything's bad. Cynical is the word. Always that way. But then there's kind of a third way of approaching expectation and preparation. Those who expect the worst and prepare for the best. Now, let me explain to you what I mean by that. There are some people who are negative, negative enough to believe that everything's bad. There's no happiness left. We're all doomed to a future, you know, of persecution and despair. But instead of preparing for the worst, instead of bracing themselves through prayer and scripture and worship and maybe, you know, community that's deep with other believers, they just kind of cruise along like, well, you know, they're fatalistic. Everything's beyond our control. And they take this passive response to the future where they refuse to look ahead. They refuse to have any kind of strategy, any kind of wisdom applied. Oh, just stick your head in the sand, wave a white flag, roll over and give up. And so I believe in light of these warnings that Jesus gives, there are people who are naive and there are people who are cynical and there are people who are passive. But friends, there's still another response and that's that we expect the best, prepare for the worst. This is the mature response. Expect the best, prepare for the worst. This is the person who lives life with joy, with confidence, with complete trust that God is still in control, even when things feel out of control. This person clings to the promise that with God all things are possible, that we can do all things through Christ who gives us strength, that God has a plan for my life to prosper me and not to harm me, to give me hope and a future. And yet this person is not so naive as to think that life is always going to be easy and it's always going to feel that way. This is the man or woman who has prepared mentally and emotionally and spiritually for whatever the future holds, whether it's easy or hard, whether it's a smooth road or a rough road, whether it's good or bad. This is the person who refuses to worry, who refuses to give in to d despair, who's strong enough and prepared enough to face whatever comes. Whether that light at the end of the tunnel is sunrise or sunset, whether it's the lights of home or whether it's an oncoming train, they're ready to handle whatever comes. Not by their own power, but by the power and grace of Jesus Christ. And so the bottom line today is simply expect the best, prepare for the worst. I think that's the mature response. Live your life with joy and confidence and hope and assurance, and yet don't be foolish. Understand the temporary nature of peace and prosperity. Toughen up. Remember that, that life might go from bad to worse before life goes to perfect someday. Until eternity, 
We live in the tension of both God's blessings and hard times. We live in the tension of God's blessings and hard times. When Catherine Arnold Wolf was 26 years old, remember 26? 26 years old, she was married, a young mom, an actress, and a model. She suffered a near fatal stroke, 26 years old. In one instant, she went from healthy and strong, a beautiful young woman with a promising future and career, to blind in one eye, deaf in one ear, unable to walk, and for a season, unable to speak. Her husband, Jay, stood by her side through all that pain and all that devastation. When she regained her ability to talk, they began to share their story, first locally and then in churches all over the country. A few years ago, they wrote a book called Hope Heals. And I've got a friend named Cassie, and she got to hear Catherine speak earlier this month at the Passion Conference in Atlanta. Catherine spoke from a wheelchair. And Cassie, my friend, posted some of the quotes from Catherine on Facebook, and I want to read a couple of those or a few of those to you because these are the words of a mature Christian. Catherine said, may you see your life as both a good story and a hard story that God is writing, good and hard. May you open your hands to release old dreams and receive new ones. May you accept the stunning capacity you have to endure because of Jesus who who endured for you. And then my favorite of her quotes, may you live out the hardest parts of your life with a joyful rebellion against the darkness. I love that. A joyful rebellion against the darkness. The darkness was real. There's no doubt about that. But so was their joy. Now, do you know how Catherine and Jay were able to face the heartbreak and heartache of their lives like that? Do you know how they could not give in to despair when the bottom dropped out of their world? It's because they built their lives on the foundation of Jesus Christ. Now, they were expecting the best. I mean, they had big plans for the future. And it all looked bright. But when the future fell apart, they did not. When their future fell apart, they refused to. They were were prepared for the worst. Now, whether they would verbalize it that way or not, they were. And their lives bear witness to that. They were ready for whatever was coming. Jesus told the church in Smyrna that harder times were just down the road. In their case, it was going to be physical persecution. They needed to toughen up because it was about to get seriously tough. And friends, that level of persecution might come on us, it might not. Maybe it'll feel more like rejection than persecution. But maybe it's going to be failing health. Maybe it will be a broken relationship, or maybe it's going to be the loss of a job, maybe a rebellious child. It might be the end of a dream. May you live your life expecting the best, prepared for the worst. Be faithful, even to the point of death, and God will give you the crown of life. Let's pray. Father, we, we see in your word the hope that we have through Christ. 
And we see the promises of eternal life and forgiveness of sins and joy and peace and love. And we love those promises. But you also told us in your word that people would hate us because of Jesus. And that we would face opposition and persecution and maybe even death. And you've told us to be faithful. There are some hard truths that we have to face as a part of your family and yet living in this world. Give us the courage to stand firm. Help us in our times of weakness, God. May we live lives that honor you. There may be persecution for a season, but there is a crown of life that lasts forever. May we cling to that. Help us to not be dismal or or to be negative. We want to be hopeful and we want to trust and we want to be joyful. But God, we also want to be realistic and not be foolhardy. We want to acknowledge that life can be hard. And so we live in that tension of your goodness and the troubles of life. Help us, we pray in Christ's name. Amen.